Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us as they do each week. We're so thankful to be able to sing and reflect on the truths of, of God. If you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I'd love for you to join me this morning in Luke's Gospel of Jesus uh, in chapter 19. If you have children up until the uh, first grade, we have a, uh, or excuse me, four and five-year-old, we have a time right now that uh, Miss Dean is in the back, and she's going to take the kids to the back for a time of teaching, uh, sensitive to their level of, uh, of understanding. We're excited that uh, we have this time. We always want to pray and be reminded that as our children go, they go uh, with an understanding that we, this is more than child care, this is discipleship for our kids. We want our, them to know from a very early age what it means to follow and walk after Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you are new to the venue, let me first again say welcome to you. If you are new to Hattiesburg, welcome to this incredible city. I pray for you that as you begin this time here in this city that God would instantly connect you, that he would instantly connect you to his purpose for your life during your time here during this season. That's a sincere prayer I have for you. That not only would God connect you instantly to his purpose for you being here in this city for this season, but that God would instantly connect you to the body of believers that he desires for you to connect with. God has gifted you with a skill set through the Holy Spirit. He has gifted you with gifts that are needed to edify and complete the body. And so as you begin your time here in Hattiesburg, my prayer is that you will instantly find a home to connect with so that you may offer your gifts and talents for the good of the church and for the advancement of the gospel, both in our city here and beyond. And that's a a sincere and true prayer for you uh, this morning. So welcome. If you've now been to one of our gatherings, the bulk of our time in God's word together collectively uh, is spent in in working through books of the Bible, just kind of just grinding through them verse by verse and to allow God to just bring out the themes that he desires to teach to us and so we don't just want to handpick things, we just want to collectively walk through God's word, allow his scriptures to bring to light the things that he desires to teach us. And so for about, it feels like 10 years now, but I think it's only been like two, we've been working our way through Luke, and it's been a sweet season, just very methodically, just, just drilling down to the core of the account of the life of Christ to see how as disciples, as literal followers of Jesus, to learn how we can walk closer and closer to the way in which Christ would walk. So we're his disciples, and he's given us a gospel that not only teaches us the narrative of how Christ accomplished what he accomplished on our behalf, but it helps us to know how we are to walk the way that Christ walked, the way his disciples walked, the way that we are to follow him in our life. And so for 18 chapters, Jesus has perfectly demonstrated what life looks like for those who are his followers. In the beginning last week, we saw a major shift in the Gospel of Luke when we saw this, where Jesus was traveling from Jericho, where he had, he, he, he had, he had come into that city, and he was traveling from there. He, if you remember in the, in the, in the text, uh, in around verse, uh, chapter 18, 17 and verse, uh, chapter 18, that he had spent you know, just this wee little bit of time with Zacchaeus, and that's my one shot at a joke for today. Uh, it, it went over about as well as I thought it would. Uh, <laughs> He had traveled 18 mountain miles. He had traveled 18 mountain miles, descended down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Now it is the Passover. Crowds of people we talked about would be in Jerusalem. 
crowds of people, causing this huge spike in the amount of people who would normally occupy the city, probably five to six times the number of people than usual. And the Passover was a major event on the, calendar of the, on the Jewish calendar, calendar because for once a year, they would gather in this city, celebrating the remembrance of their deliverance from captivity, from slavery. And they would look at this as a time to anticipate and look forward to the second deliverance where they knew that, another Messiah, that, that the Messiah would return again and would rescue them and establish his eternal reign. So Jesus, he sends his disciples ahead of him to fetch and grab a donkey. Now, it's interesting. He tells his disciples, he said, you go into that city and you're going to find a donkey tied up? Well, you just take that donkey. Okay, so his disciples are going, just like, go and grab it. And Jesus said, yeah, just go grab it. Tell the guy the Lord's in need of it. And God had planned all this perfectly. And so Jesus, for the first time, would assume the posture and position of a king. And he would ride the donkey into the city. And the people that had marveled at how God had moved would worship. As Jesus would triumphantly enter into the city, they would worship him. They would yell out as they laid palm branches in their cloaks in the road and would say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. God had arranged perfectly everything. The path that Jesus would take to Jerusalem would occupy many months. He would weave through different regions all throughout the ancient biblical world, but yet his arrival to the destination would be right on time, right in time for the Passover. And as Jesus comes to the city, we see the heart and the compassion of the king because it says that Jesus would see the city and he would weep. Jesus would weep for those in the city. And this was even a part of the father's plan to reveal the heart of the king. And all of these events were centered around the sacrificial lamb that the people would bring to pay the price for the sins of the people. But little did they know that this year would be a different type of Passover. Because this year, the Passover would have the true sacrificial lamb who would pay the permanent price for the sins of all people. And through this look last week in Luke, we learned that our, what our king is like, that he is very providential, that nothing happens outside of his plan and will. That Jesus is very providential, that he is also the messianic king, that he is truly Messiah, that when they sang and worshiped and said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, literally rescue us, they were right. He was the Messiah that was coming to rescue them, although it would look different than what they anticipated. And we also saw the compassion of the king, that Jesus is a compassionate king. As he wept over the city, you can rest and know that the Father loves you. He's compassionate towards you. He is very near to you. And though you walk through difficult times, he is with you because he loves you. He loves you like a good father. And then we also looked at how Jesus is the universal king. Jesus is a global king. He is the God for all people. And we have seen, as we've looked at this Jewish culture, we have seen how the Israelites were his chosen people, but now through the blood of Jesus, he is the king and Messiah for all people, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. And so Jesus would demonstrate through his entry that he was unlike any king who had ever entered into our world. But as we will see this morning, Jesus was truly king, and he demands our allegiance. He is a compassionate king, but he is also one who demands that he receive the worship that only a king should receive. He demands our allegiance, our worship, and our submission to him. So this morning in Luke chapter 19, a very short passage this morning, but on the heels of entering the city, I want to see the first order of business for Jesus. So if you will join me, four short short verses, uh, beginning with verse 45. 
Luke 19, verse 45 says this. He entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And as he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people They were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. God, what a short yet powerful, powerful passage that is filled with so much truth, not only culturally and situationally, God, but very personally in our life. God, this morning we pray that you teach us through these short words. Teach us what this means for us. Teach us what this means for us as a church, God. We need you. We need you to teach us. We come empty-handed, God. I have nothing that will change lives to present this morning, God, but we pray that your spirit will join the work of the word that is alive and active and will change hearts, God, that you will, you will mine out things in our life that are, that are robbing you of the worship and the glory and the allegiance that are yours, God. So I need you, Father. Just speak through me this morning for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's get what's happening in here, okay? Now, to, to truly grasp what has taken place here, we, we, we need to go history for just a few minutes, okay? So I want to just kind of go into the history books a little bit. I know what you're thinking. We still have a few days left before school begins. Just, just consider this a warm-up, okay? Let's get the blood flowing back through the gray matter this morning. And, and this is, so I want to show you a picture. This is what the temple would look like during Jesus' time, okay? So this is kind of a rendition of what the temple. The temple, it was a place of worship. So you see the city uh, surrounding it, and then you see the temple courts there. This was a place where people would come together. But you didn't just bust up into the temple and do as you please. It was very ordered and very structured and very exclusive. So, those, so for those who were coming into the temple, they would come into the temple courts. So all around the, the outside wall there that you see, that would be the temple courts. Now what's interesting about this is that would be the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to come. So even the people that, were God's, that weren't God's chosen people yet, they would stay on this outside perimeter. But if they had committed their life to the God of Israel... They would come and they would gather in these temple courts, okay, all around the outside edge there. This is a place where they could come and, and to pray. And this, this is significant, we'll see in just a moment. But by choice, these foreigners to the nation of Israel would worship the Lord. And this is the place that they could come and they could do that. But surrounding the actual temple was this inner wall there. And this wall was a barrier, Because they knew as Gentiles that they did not have access to the God of Israel in a very intimate way, the way the chosen people could. There was a penalty. They could not go into that place. There was a huge penalty. So if you were to go into this bottom gate here and go into this inner courtyard there, there was a place where it was a court of, uh, for women. They were allowed to go a little closer in. As you get to the, the inner gate there that's right in front of that big tall structure in the middle, you would go to that point and that was where there would be a, a, a court, of the pre, uh, court of Israel where the people would be. There would be a court of the priest. And, and it's at that place, at the court of the priest, there would be an altar, which would be for worship. That would be as you enter into that, that inner gate and you go right before that big, tall structure, there would be the court of the priest where all the priests would come together and they would offer sacrifices. Uh, but then you would go into the Holy of Holies. So the big, tall structure tower there with that big, tall entranceway, that was where the literal dwelling place of God was. 
Okay, so this is where they would, the high priest only would offer the sacrifice, serving as a mediator. So he would go into the Holy of Holies. There would be a curtain, a veiled curtain, where he would enter into the presence of God to present the sacrifice for all people. And this was quite interesting. No one could go in there but the high priest to where they would even uh, wear uh, bells on their robes so that as they went to the Holy of Holies, if something happened and they quit hearing the jingle, nobody was going in there. They're just going to pull that guy out, okay? So, so they wanted to, to, to let you know that this was a very sacred place. And this would be where he would take the sacrificial lamb and he would pray for the sins of, of all people on the head of this lamb. And then he would cut it and bleed it out and, 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 and splatter the blood of the animals on the altar and, and as a way to say, God, forgive us for our sins. So kind of the picture of this, this inner holy of holies would almost be more like maybe like a butcher shop than like a, than like a, a little clean, nice places where they would literally the blood of lambs from all the people would be, would be offered by the high priest. And so what you get here from this picture is there is very much a picture of division and so you've got this court, and then it's even divided inside by what the people of Israel, where they could go. There was very much many layers to coming before God in the Holy of Holies. And in fact, only one person would enter in, the high priest would go into the literal presence of God, because in that place stood the Ark of the Covenant. So inside the Holy of Holies, behind that veiled curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant, where it was the dwelling place of God among his people before Christ would come and die. So now Jesus comes into his temple, and for those who were waiting in anticipation of the coming king, they would be reflecting on the words of the prophet Malachi in chapter 3. So so look up on the screen and look at Malachi chapter 3. Follow this prophecy. In verse 1, Malachi the prophet would say, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, this new covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So some hundreds of years, hundreds of years before this would happen, the prophet described what it would be like when the king would come to his people. Now what is interesting here is what was going on in those temple courts. By design... The temple courts were created to be a place where the nations would meet with God in worship and praise and prayer. A place for the nations to be evangelized, for the people of Israel to teach the Gentiles about their God, to teach them about the good news of a coming Messiah. And so Jews would actually witness to their pagan neighbors and tell them about the one true and living God of Israel. But instead of being committed to evangelism, when Jesus comes, this area had become a circus. It would have looked more like a marketplace than it would a place of worship and prayer for the nations. So this would look like a marketplace where where there was all kinds of vendors there and there was all kinds of sales of things going on. It was kind of like people were making a profit off of selling things that were needed for worship. Okay, so, so who were these salesmen and why were they, why were they there? Well, we look in some of the other gospel accounts and, and they go a little more descriptive. 
in Matthew especially, where he talks about money changers would be on hand to exchange foreign money from other lands as these foreign Gentiles would come in, they would change their money into, into uh, ty- Tyrian shekels in order to purchase what was needed. So they were money changers. They were kind of like a check cashing business. You come and bring your foreign money. They would convert it to the right currency but charge you a fee. So they were making money off of this particular situation. Those who had come for the Passover needed money. They'd be charged crazy fees. It was just kind of this huge ripoff deal. But secondly... There were sacrifices that were being sold in these temples. So you imagine the scene of these temple courts, which would be a place of worship, and it's full of animals and, and, and offerings, things that could be bought to be offered. And this was just this other shady transaction that was happening in the temple courts where the Israelites were, 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 were abusing the Gentiles. So, so some who were traveling, even Israelites, even those who had truly were coming, they weren't from the Gentile nations. They had, they had, some of them had gotten lazy and desensitized to the word sacrifice, and so they could buy a sacrifice. So instead of having to make this long journey, hauling your sacrifice for you, they're like, we'll just take care of it when we get there. We'll buy it, and we won't ever have to take even possession of it. We'll walk in, we'll pay the guy, he'll offer our sacrifice for us. So they had become very desensitized to what the meaning of bringing their offering, their sacrifice for their sins. So it's truly not much of a sacrifice at all. Others were bringing animals, but in order to make money, some of those who would travel with their animals, in order to make money, the priest would look at their animal and they would disqualify the animal for sacrifice that they had brought from home. And they, it was very convenient. They'd say, I don't know, this goat, is, it, should, it doesn't meet criteria, but now this is a really nice goat here. You should probably look at buying this one and it'll suffice for you. And so what they brought for their sacrifice would be disqualified and it was just this replacement given to them at this crazy price. Now, I kind of picture the movies here. And I love the movies. But once you get inside, they got you, okay? I know you're sneaking stuff in on your purse. You don't have to, you don't have to hide it from the pastor. I know. But if you go into the movies and you go in there and you go to purchase things, you get inside, they've got you. The Coke that costs 45 cents outside of the wall is $14.67, once you get inside, it's so expensive. You know, that endless bag of popcorn, they tell you, you get a, it's, it's bottomless, man. Eat all the popcorn you, you want. Well, it costs them a nickel and it costs you 18 bucks, but you can eat all of it that you want. So now, I, you know, this is kind of what I picture here. There's these merchants that are saying, well, they're here now. They've traveled from a distant land. There is nowhere else they're gonna go out and get this. So we're gonna spike prices and we're gonna make money off of this. This is not kosher with the king. Because when he comes in, he expects something different. So rather than praying and evangelizing here, the Gentiles were getting a poor picture of the king and his kingdom. So Jesus gets a little wild here. The other gospel writers would describe this scene with a little more detail. They would say that Jesus would enter the temple and he would start cleaning house. Matthew would say that he would flip over the tables of money changers, and he would turn over the chairs of those selling sacrifices. You ever seen somebody literally just flip over a table? Table? That is a reaction that is hard to misinterpret, okay? If Jesus comes in and he literally takes the, the table with their goods and flips that thing over, he is not happy with things. And so Jesus comes in and he just flips out, and Jesus was not doing this to show off like saying all right I'm here now I'm fixing to flex up and show you that I'm really king now so you better get ready I'm about to just disrupt this place no he it was not to show physical power this was not 
so that he could say, I told you I was king. I told you you better not mess with me. But Jesus had this holy anger, this righteous rage to set straight what was out of line. So listen, Jesus was indeed the king. He was a compassionate king, meek and mild, as he would describe himself. A man of sorrow, as we sang about him, acquainted with grief. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine that he is gentle and he is lowly in heart. That's the characteristics of the heart of our king. In his Sermon on the Mount, he would say, blessed are the meek. But hear me this morning. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It is rather strength under control. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He acted out in defense against what was unjust. So Jesus just completely cleans it out. Talks, you know, we would see this in Isaiah 56, 7, where the prophet would say the house would be a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. And so the scandal that Jesus attacks was the exclusion of Gentiles from the grace of God, from seeing the beauty of the king. And little did they know that just in a few short days, he would fully accomplish inclusion of all people by his shed blood. And so Luke would continue by showing that after cleaning the temple and purifying it, Jesus would set up camp there and preach for the next few days the news of his kingdom. He would fulfill the prophecy of Malachi by being like a refiner's fire. He would preach a message that had all of the people literally hanging on his words. They wanted to kill this dude. The time was not right yet. It was not the time. To the very day God had this planned out before the foundations of the earth, it was not time. And they could literally not touch him because there were people that were just literally hanging on his teaching. And Jesus' use of the temple was the last and the ultimate glory of the temple as we know it. Because remember, what Jesus had said on entering the city, as he prayed over the, na- over the, over the city itself, he says he weeped because he said there's not going to be one stone left on top of the other. He said this glory of this temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. So why did Jesus find such offense at what was taking place in these temple courts? While the worship and the dwelling place of God was in that temple, why did he react with such passion and holy anger? I think we see two reasons. First of all, it was for the honor of his father's name. Jesus had this rage and this holy anger because of a desire for the honor of his father's name. Jesus said that the father's house was a place of prayer, a place of seeking God, a place of worship, a place where his name would be honored and lifted up. So the Passover was a feast that was for the honor and glory and worship of God. And yet they had made it a place of self-serving profitability. It made it like a shopping mall. While the God, the creator of the universe, was in his dwelling place on earth, there were people, his own chosen people, who he had delivered, capitalizing on profits by using religion for personal gain. But not only was it for the honor of his father's name, but it was for the salvation of sinners. Jesus' heart of compassion was seen even by his desire to purify the temple courts. It wasn't like he just weaved through the outer courts and be like, let me get away from these outcasts and get to my people. No, he, upon entering the gates and seeing what was taking place where the Gentiles would gather, the people that would be looked on as second tier, Jesus says, no, this is not right. His, his desire for the people was seen instantly. You know, from the construction of the temple, the heartbeat of the gathering place of God had the nations at the core. 
Let me show you something in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but look, 1 Kings chapter 8, 41 through 43. So Solomon, on the very first day that the temple had been constructed, would dedicate the temple. There was tons of celebrations surrounding that special day as the temple would receive the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple to the point that the priests, they could not stand to minister because of the cloud of the presence of God. After blessing the people, Solomon would pray this prayer to the Father. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The temple for its, from its construction was intended to be a place for Gentile evangelism. So Jesus comes in to make right what the temple was intended for. So what is this application for us? What does this mean for us? Why is this important for us? I want to show you something. The very presence of God was in that place. When the temple was constructed, this would be where God would dwell among his people. People would gather to the temple, would bring the sacrifice with him, and they would wait for a mediator to offer their sacrifice and worship God in a place where his presence was limited to that one place. The temple was to be a place of confession, a place of brokenness, a place of sacrifice. Why? Because there is nothing more valuable and nothing more glorious and nothing more worthy than God. And there is no greater aim, and there is no greater desire than for me to connect with God and respond to his glory properly through worship with my entire being. That was what the temple was about. And when they would leave and return home, they did not go with the presence of God. He dwelt at the temple. But I want you to hear this transition. Hold your finger in that place and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because here's the transition for us, church. Jesus is soon going to be rejected and ejected from the temple in just a few short days. And Jesus' death and resurrection would completely change everything. And so the temple would be destroyed. Jesus comes in and rocks the world with his death and resurrection. He eliminates the need for a mediator. And look what this new temple is is about. This temple that was built by man's hands, is no longer what the temple and dwelling place of God looks like. Join with me. It says, therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope And without God in the world. But listen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So check this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built, listen to the construction analogy, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom this whole structure is being joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The people of God, with their hearts being united together with Jesus as the cornerstone, are being built into a holy temple. Verse 22 says, in him, you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God. His people redeemed would replace a brick and mortar building. And he says, look, check out this new covenant. It is so upside down from what you consider to be normal. Check out this temple. It's not even going to be a physical place like a building. He says, I'm going to make my dwelling place among and in my people who united and joined together will be the dwelling place of God. Wow. How incredible that the redeemed of Jesus would be the dwelling place for his spirit on this earth. So Jesus comes now and says there was once a literal temple and now he dwells in us. So as we go, we take the Spirit of God with us. The temple represented not only division, but now we see that we no longer have a priest who has to intercede on our behalf. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, and don't try to follow me, just, just watch these scriptures, let it just... Let it just speak truth to your heart. First Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the king. There's one mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Now on this point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So Christ now is this, this high priest, the great high priest, this mediator. Hebrews 9, beginning with verse 11, says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, so this is the high priest that was just described, when he appeared of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, it's not like the temple we saw a picture of, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And as we continue this kingdom message that Luke wants us to see, follow with me and see what this coming kingdom will look like. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. This is a new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, man, I love this. The dwelling place of God is with man. He says the kingdom that is coming, he says he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. This is what the eternal temple will look like when Jesus, when God returns with his kingdom, with his new Jerusalem. And dwells among us as his people. The dwelling place of God is with man. So the temple, the dwelling place was in the Holy of Holies. Today God dwells in us. We are his dwelling place. In the kingdom he will dwell with us. And we will be his people. So Jesus, our king, is everything the temple ever was or signified. I want you to follow me. Jesus is the presence of God. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is our only access to God. No man comes through the Father but by me. We no longer need the priest. We have the great high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Scripture says that by the wounds of Christ we have been healed. Jesus is our mediator. We just read he's a mediator of a new covenant. We have a mediator, but it's Christ. And Jesus is everything. What a beautiful beautiful plan that God has for us. So we see this morning that Jesus desires, not only desires, but he demands worship from his temple. That the temple will be a place of worship, just as it was at the time when they were brick and mortar, now as it is with our hearts. Jesus wants worship, and we are his dwelling place. I pray that we will strive to have hearts purified like Jesus, literally purified as the temple. So in closing, what are the marks of a God-honoring temple? What do we do with that? What are some characteristics that obviously put this description in there and now we are the temple, the dwelling place of God? What are these marks? Well, I think the first of all, we learn that the mark of the temple, the heart that God dwells in, he wants it to be a heart of purity, a heart that is pure. Jesus had to purify the earthly temple as the dwelling place of God because the focus was off. He walked in, he said, this is about my father's name, you've made it about other things and I'm going to disrupt that. His temple was to be a place where he was the center and where everything worked together for his glory and for the spread of the truth of the God of Israel among those who did not know him. From the very entrance into the temple courts, it was a place that ushered in the worship of the Lord through prayers And then it progressed into spaces for the worship of God's people and finally into the Holy of Holies where the priests would offer sacrifices. Everything joined into one chorus to sing the glories of the God of Israel. So check this out. As we will see in a few weeks, when Jesus died, the literal veil, the literal veil was torn. The curtain that divided the very presence of God from everyone but the high priest was completely torn in two. And now Jesus invites you to come to him. He says, you are the temple, you are the dwelling place. And just as he desired purity and worship in his temple, he desires the same for our hearts. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say these words. He would say, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart, why? For they 
will see God. So knowing our condition on our own, we want hearts purely focused on him, that are pure before him, by focusing our attention on him. 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is not God saying, you don't come to me unless you're pure. This is saying that by coming to him, he purifies us. So let me ask you, Jesus desires a pure heart. What in your life, what in your heart, in the very dwelling place of God until he returns, needs to be cleared out to make for pure worship of God? Maybe for some of you, you aren't, you're, the purity of your heart has been debased because you have focused on other things besides him. God desires that his temple be a pure place. Not only a pure place, but a place that leads to the second thing, proper worship. Proper worship. Let me ask you, in your life, what are you worshiping? I know we all would say by the fact that we are here, most of us would say I'm worshiping God or a God. But what are you worshiping? There's one king in the kingdom and we are not him. He desires us to worship him. He desires that his temple be a place of worship. And so if God is now dwelling in a temple that is us collectively, is it a, are we collectively a people with a heart of worship, proper worship? Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's still sacrifice taking place. To present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? That is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So where in the temple worship happened through the the sacrifice of innocent lambs, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he calls us to sacrifice as an expression of worship, but because of Jesus, our sacrifice is not the death of something because death has been paid, but our sacrifice is our lives. Our sacrifice is our life. To lay it down for the king. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and that is your spiritual act of proper worship. Worship is more than what is confined to a sheet of music. Worship is what we do with our lives. It is what we are called to do, to lay them down. So what does this look like? Well, it looks opposite of the world. Because what does he say? He says, when you bring yourself in worship as your spiritual act of worship, second verse feeds right into that. It says, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. And so it's the opposite of the world. How are we transformed? By renewing our minds, by focusing our minds on the things of God and on the very worship of God with our lives. And check this out. When Jesus is the focus of our lives, when we come to him with the sacrifice of worship being our lives, we can more clearly discern the will of God. You see that? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed that you may discern the will of God. 
So there are some layers that you and I can get to in proper worship to where we can see God more clearly. Some of you may be struggling to discern the will of God for your lives, but let me ask you, are you pressing into him primarily? Are you pressing into him, offering your life, saying, God, if it's a struggle, if it's whatever it is, I'm offering my life to you as my spiritual act of worship. I'm not going to think and act the way the world does. I'm going to think and act with a transformed mind, focused and centered on you, and I'm going to trust that you are going to, in your wisdom, give me the answers to the will that you have for my life. That's what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It leads to proper worship, which leads to a renewed mind, which leads to discernment of the will of God. But there's a final thing that I think is the temple we must be, and that is that we must be a people, a temple of prayer. The clear, descriptive word that Jesus said would characterize his temple, his dwelling place, is prayer. Church, if, if, if I can encourage you in anything today, it would be this. We must become a people of prayer. We must become a people of prayer. Jim Cimbala, who founded the Brooklyn Tabernacle, a church that is reaching many in Brooklyn, he said this about the necessity of prayer as he looked at a congregation of a handful of people who were former drug addicts and prostitutes and people from the street, having no gifts and talents to offer. And this is what he says, a church that has grown to be a large-sized church. He said, if we desire the hand of God and his power to return to our churches, we should focus less on the personalities and the abilities of his people and more on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, no matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend on our times of prayer. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest lecturers in the history of the church, a guy who was known for drawing great crowds because he was such a phenomenal preacher. He crafted sermons in a way that very few have done since his time. Spoke timeless messages and crowds would gather by the thousands back before people gathered by the thousands for worship. And yet this guy who had a church that was so large and who was an incredible preacher, said this. He said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting, so is the prayer meeting a graceometer. And from it, we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. He said, if God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. One of the greatest lectures of the gospel would say, you wanna see a lazy church? You look at a church that doesn't pray. That is the first sign of a slothful church. Church, I must say, we have, as the body of Christ universal, we have much work to do here. I just want to be real candid with you this morning. Jesus walked into his temple where all kinds of stuff was going on, and he said, my temple is going to be a house of prayer, yet you have made it a temple about many other things. If we want to see God move among us as his people, if we want to see him do a work in us, it will not be through gimmicks. 
It will not be through incredible sermons. It will not be through engaging worship or creative environments and atmospheres, although God can use each of those. But if we want to see God move, it will come when God's people fall before him in honest, raw, vulnerable prayer. Why is that? Because God said that's the way it was gonna be. So why is this important in our individual hearts? Why is it important that you become people of prayer? Because we're the temple. Collectively, we are being brought together into the church, which is the spiritual dwelling place of God. I love this building, but it is not holy. The dwelling place of God is us, and God said that his temple will be a house of prayer. So what is your position with prayer? Are you seeking God? Even when it's hard, are you falling on your face and saying, God, this is hard, but you've called me to this, and I know that you will move. I promise you, God, I've said this a thousand times from this very podium, God always blesses his plan. And so if God said this is the way it's gonna be, that's the way he's gonna bless. So may we be a people of prayer. That's what he desires for his temple. So in conclusion, the temple, God's desire was that his presence would dwell among his people. Acts 17, when Paul is standing in the Areopagus, lecturing to men of philosophy, he says this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. So collectively, church, as God's people, we are his dwelling place. But the beauty of God's desire to glorify himself in all places is seen in his design. Because once the temple had limited presence, but now as God's temple... We scatter throughout the world into our different domains and there is an unlimited presence of our holy God. May we reflect the goodness and glory of God where he has us and where we go. May we be the church. May we be the pure dwelling place of God. Let's pray together.